Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. This was a year unlike any other. A year that can be summed up in single words. Brexit. Trump. Aleppo. You're listening to World Weekly with me, Daniel Dombey. On the show this week, we'll be looking back but also forward as we take stock of 12 months that seem set for the history books. Joining me in the studio is Gideon Rackman, VFT's Chief Foreign Affairs columnist, who's swapping seats from a presenter's chair, and Frederick Studeman, our features editor. Gideon, after the breakneck ride of 2016, do you think we can take a breather in 2017? No, I don't think so, actually, because... We're now going to uh, live through the consequences of 2016 because Donald Trump has won, but he's not actually president. That happens on January the 20th. And that will be an extraordinary moment. And uh, I think the consequences will probably be fairly extraordinary as well, because both in terms of style, with the way in which he appears inclined to announce major changes in foreign policy in a tweet at three in the morning, but also in terms of the substance with a very controversial rapprochement with Russia, the idea of reversing American policy in Syria, possibly breaking the Iran nuclear deal, heading towards a much more confrontational attitude towards China on both trade and on security issues, possibly ripping up American commitments to security alliances. There's all sorts of incredible stuff that might happen under Donald Trump. It's very unpredictable. So that's one thing. On Brexit... The other word you mentioned, well, they haven't started negotiating yet. We really get to the crunch in the middle of next year as the negotiations start. And my personal feeling is they'll go very badly. And so you'll get a, a heightened sense of crisis. Then you also have this whole issue of populism. Will it keep rolling? And there's plenty of scope for that with three big elections in Europe, the Netherlands in March, France, presidential election in May, which everyone will be bated breath to see if Marine Le Pen wins, and the German elections in 2017. And finally, you mentioned the Middle East, Aleppo. It feels like the fall of Aleppo is drawing a line under the conflict, but actually I don't think it is. I think that there's still quite a lot of fighting to happen in Syria and indeed in Iraq, Aleppo has fallen, but Mosul hasn't fallen yet, Raqqa hasn't fallen yet. And if Trump rips up the Iran nuclear deal, you have a whole nother load of petrol poured on the fire. Fred, so uh, after that cheering tour de raison by Gideon, I was just wondering, I mean, what do we know about Brexit in particular that we didn't know before? To me, sometimes I'm struck that our leaders don't seem to be planning or visibly telling us very much about what they've intended Unfortunately, I'm not going to be able to add some optimistic notes here after Gideon's excellent introduction. But I, I think, I mean, you kind of nailed it that you know we have spent the last few months talking intensely about Brexit. We've learned a lot of sort of details about things like the customs union, which wasn't a feature of political discourse here previously. But we are still largely in the dark in that we don't really know how it's going to play out. There is this policy from the Prime Minister to not show her hand, which she believes will put her in a better position once negotiations really start. But there's immense pressure on her to start revealing things. And meanwhile, people, I mean, I know we're not supposed to trust experts anymore, but people who do know about these things are saying this is supposed to kick off in the spring and be done and dusted within two years. And people who know about these things say this is wholly unrealistic. And um, I mean, Gideon's written a wonderful piece about how this could lead us to a situation where we forget all this rhetoric about a hard Brexit, as in we just leave, or a soft Brexit if we're sort of half in and half out, but we're sort of heading for Brexit train crash. So um, 
answer to your question, we have learned a lot more because we've all been talking about it, but I don't think in terms of the real substance we've moved on that much further. Gideon, let me try again to get us in a happier place. Um, You know, Trump, he breaks the deadlock on Capitol Hill. He gets a big infrastructure program, the likes of which people have been talking about for years. He kicks off his presidency by being nicer to Russia and being tougher on China. He's not the first president to do that. Mm. Are we all needlessly hyperventilating about this? Look, it's possible that it will look like that in a year's time. In fact, I'm very torn because in a way I'm so, to be honest, abhor Trump and the, the campaign he ran that I worry that he'll look like a success in a year's time because I think the economy could be roaring. It's already growing and you'll have fuel put into the tank with these tax cuts and infrastructure spending. And so Trump may look relatively good on the economic front. I don't think actually the idea per se of a rapprochement with Russia, you know, some people may find it distasteful and can disagree with it, but it's a perfectly respectable idea. It's been tried before, as you say, and there's a case for it. It's just that there's this sort of faintly sinister aspect to it with this apparent Russian backing for Trump during the election and a rather chilling aspect to it because of the way in which Trump actually seems almost enthusiastic for what the Russians are doing in Aleppo and so on. But, you know, it's not out of the question as a kind of idea, a realpolitik idea. The the China stuff worries me. I mean, again, you can argue it backwards and forwards, though. I mean, I, I... wrote something immediately after the Taiwan phone call saying, you know, this is incredibly foolish and so on. And that's what the foreign policy establishment think, because China is so vicious about Taiwan and has always said it would go to war over Taiwan. On the other hand, friends of mine pushed back at me and said, well, hang on, shouldn't the Americans have a bit more backbone over Taiwan? After all, this is a democratic country, a place where the president has been democratically elected. Who are the Chinese to say that the Americans can never speak to the president of Taiwan? Maybe you should push back. So some of the stuff that Trump says, by accident or design, actually may have something to be said for it. The difficulty is with the style of the man, the style of the politics, where, to be blunt, he's tolerated crazy conspiracy theories, lies, all that sort of thing. To see that sort of politics validated in any way is is uncomfortable for me. And I guess it also adds to the mix that there was a Russian operation that does seem to have been against Hillary Clinton, if not for Absolutely. Trump. Absolutely. I mean, it's, it's all the way down to the bottom of tickets, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And then you look, one of, one of my things that I, I used to sort of say was, oh, you know, intelligence is all a big game, never really affects the real world. Well, this actually could be the ultimate proof that intelligence operations matter, you know, and that, you know, friends of mine who know Eastern Europe have said, look, we saw this coming. It happened in the Polish elections. It happened in, in other elections elections in Eastern Europe. They've been trialing this stuff for years. We just never thought it could actually work in the United States. And now one has to be a little bit careful because you can never prove that this is what swung it. Maybe she would have lost anyway. Maybe it was the FBI thing, James Comey's intervention in the last weeks of the campaign. Who knows? But it's pretty extraordinary event. I mean, as you say, it's like something out of a novel. People say that success has many fathers and failure is an orphan, but actually this failure has lots of potential parents, given just how narrowly she lost by. So yeah, any, almost any hypothetical. In three states. Dan, could I turn the tables on you? Because I'd actually like to know what, as a former Turkey correspondent, you think of what's happening in Turkey, because in any ordinary year, it would be on the front pages every day, because it's extraordinary what's happening post the coup in July. Do you think we're seeing basically the extinction of Turkish democracy? Is that too strong? That might not be how I phrase it. I think in Turkey, you saw a country which had a very difficult history, four coups in half a century. 
but which had been seemed to be set on a path, moved from that path while I was there. And you also saw a new kind of populism that was very powerful, that relied on contested facts, on an appeal to people who felt that they'd lost out to date, really winning again and again and again and growing in strength as it delivered economic benefits to those who supported it, people who felt they'd been left out by the old order. So I think it showed a few things to me. It showed me that populists don't go away, that they address in some case an issue that people feel really very strongly that they're losing out. And this faith that people have that someone's going to be rumbled, that just because they're pushing what others see as lies, because institutions crumble and disappear, that this is going to end, well, Mr Erdogan is only getting more popular at the ballot box. There are many astonishing things in Turkey this year. We've seen an awful history of terrorist attacks. We saw this very bizarre coup attempt in July, which seems many people believe was linked to this cleric in Pennsylvania. But it's actually the continuation of a personalised power of Recep Tayyip Erdogan. And what's really striking is that this is a long-term plan he had to concentrate power in the presidency, which not entirely coincidentally he holds. And um, even two or three years ago, there was only a relatively small minority, 30-something percent of people in Turkey, who felt that Turkey should be changed for good, that its constitution should be rewritten to give him this power. These days, he seems set for a new, tumultuous, perhaps final showdown in the form of a referendum next year on these new powers. And according to the polls, he stands a very good chance of winning them. So let's not write off populists. When we think about these guys, whether it's Chavez or Maduro or Putin or Erdogan or Trump or whoever, there aren't many examples of them losing the ballot box. Theirs is a message that resonates. What about the economy in Turkey? I mean, that was a constituency from which he drew a lot of support initially, small business people and such like. I think there's a couple of things. One is that there was an old oligarchic order in Turkey of old money, who in many cases who could trace their wealth back to the foundation of a republic and when resources were expropriated from minorities. And then there was an up-and-coming Anatolian class that wanted a bit of that. And I think that Erdogan spoke to those people. And that's actually, in a certain sense, a productive dynamic. But there's also Turkey, to a certain extent, in recent years, like many emerging markets, was a QE play. It did very well when money was incredibly cheap. And money's less cheap now. And we've seen interest rates go up. Some people think a 30-year trend is now reversing. And if that is the case, where that's going to be felt, because that's always where it's felt most, is in emerging markets. But now emerging markets have more, in particular, corporate debt than ever before. And what that means for not just places like Turkey, but places like Brazil, South Africa, India, is one of the most important stories of 2017. Agreed. Fred, let's take this personally. These votes, they're against people like us, aren't they? These votes are against the international elite, so-called people like the FD audience and perhaps even FD contributors like us. What do the elites make of these votes? What does a country like Germany make of these tumultuous votes that have ripped up the political rule book? Well, I think they've been as shocked as anyone, certainly the German elites have, and are trying to make sense of it. I think, obviously, they have their own testing point coming in 2017, autumn, probably in September, the federal elections where Merkel will be running for a fourth term in office. Her popularity has certainly taken a significant hit in the last year, if not a little bit before, when the refugee crisis erupted. I think the 
German elites have traditionally often actually, dare I say, been quite complacent. It's something that's often overlooked in Germany is that they've managed to sort of be aware of what the populace wanted, like they did not want the euro, and then to blithely ignore it and get on with it. Most recently, we saw Merkel's policy on the refugees, where again, they ignored certain I mean, it was more complicated popular view on that, but certainly certain opinions were ignored. And they're now faced with the consequence of that, which is that they have their own homegrown party, the Alternative for Deutschland, which has morphed a bit like UKIP, strange enough, from being something that came out of academic circles of being very narrowly focused on economics against the euro primarily and become a broader sort of populist, slightly nativist uh, entity, which now looks likely to win seats in the um, federal parliament. And that in turn is going to create a situation where within 20, 30 years in Germany, you will have gone from having a limited number of parties in parliament. So it was easy to form coalitions. They broadly fell into two blocks left or right of the centre to now having up to probably six parties. Coalition building will become a lot more difficult and politics will just become more messy. So I think that is another cheery note for 2017. Whether the elites will use that... The mess in Germany is never going to match up with the mess in Britain and the United States. I was about to say, I think they're in a more secure place at the moment, the German elites and others, but that does not mean that they're not rattled. And they, in turn, as a consequence of this, they feel under pressure because a lot is now being demanded of Germany and a lot of people are looking to Germany. And this has been heard for a long time of you need to step up, you need to do more, you need to get involved, all over that. And suddenly it's now becoming very real. And they're even saying quite openly now, saying we can't do all of this. You're all asking us to do this stuff. So that's a sort of different problem of the elites, if you like. (laughs) So, Gideon, just to wrap up, if Germany isn't quite in the right place to become leader of a free world, how does the Trump-China face-off translate into the future, do you think? Is China going to emerge as top nation? Well, I mean, interestingly, the Chinese in the aftermath of Trump do seem to have tried to make tentative moves in that direction, not of becoming top nation in any formal sense, but assuming more of the kind of global responsibilities that the United States has had in the past, so that after Trump was elected, the Chinese came out and said, well, you mustn't abandon the global climate change accords and began to take ownership of those. When Trump said that he was going to pull America out of the Trans-Pacific Partnership, which is a big trade deal Obama had been painstakingly putting together, the Chinese said, well, maybe we can sponsor the RCEP, which is a China-centered free trade area in the Pacific And similarly, the Chinese are now trying quite hard to push one of their nationals to be head of the UN peacekeeping operation in New York. Again, not a kind of thing that they used to be interested in in the past. Chinese investment, China's now presenting itself as the champion of globalization at a time when America is much more hesitant, indeed hostile to the whole idea of globalism. That's the thing that Trump campaigned against. So it's rather symbolic that at the meeting in Davos in January, President Trump will be nowhere to be seen, but President Xi Jinping is showing up at the World Economic Forum, which is kind of the assembly of the global elite you were referring to. And Xi Jinping will be there to try to present China as the voice of responsibility, if you like. Well, it's not normally we get to wrap up this way, but uh, with that bombshell, that's it for this week and this year. My thanks to Gideon Rachman and Frederick Studeman. World Weekly is produced by Fiona Simon. Till next year, goodbye.